I grew up near a river, the Ohio River to be exact. In fact, the house I just moved here from in Cincinnati is only a quick eight minute drive over the Ohio River and into Kentucky. So when the prophet Ezekiel talks about the water flowing out from the temple and creating a river flowing to the south, my mind immediately takes me to the Vernon Ohio River Valley. Just outside the city, the hills on either side of the river are alive with tall trees. You can see barges traveling up and down the river to other ports along the way, delivering goods like coal and grain to other cities. One of the things that has always fascinated me about rivers is that somehow they are constant and timeless and yet always changing and new. The Ohio River was an important trade route for countless groups of indigenous peoples. Later, it helped westward settlers transport goods to promising new lands in the West. In the 1800s, enslaved Africans forded this very same river in an attempt to make it to the free states in the North or Canada. Today, the banks of the Ohio River are home to major league baseball stadiums, fancy dining restaurants, hiking trails, and riverfront parks. When you stand high on the hills overlooking the river, you get a sense of this history. And when you walk along its banks, it's easy to imagine all the people who may have stood before you there in that very spot. At the same time, when you walk along the banks or dip a toe into the river and feel the movement of the water, suddenly you realize that the flowing water is in a constant state of replenishment, being made new every hour of every day. When the prophet Ezekiel describes the river flowing from the temple, I wonder if he could ever have imagined all of the places that rivers would go and all of the things they would carry. Water imagery is an already established uh, way of understanding the divine when Ezekiel delivers this vision. What's new, though, throughout Ezekiel's visions is the movement of the divine into and out of the temple. This is a pretty big theological statement. The divine isn't confined to one place. The divine goes where she wills and returns when she wants. In chapter 10, God appears as something called the wheelwork and rolls on out of that temple and is experienced by the people in exile. Later in chapter 43, the glory of God comes roaring back like the sound of mighty waters and flows into the temple, causing Ezekiel to fall on his face, only to be lifted up by the spirit and carried with the divine into the temple. Our vision takes place in chapter 47 and God is on the move once again, flowing out into the world making stagnant waters fresh, carrying enough food for all to eat, and causing healing leaves to grow on nearby trees. This sounds like the God I know. This sounds like the God that appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden after he is laid in the tomb to await his burial. Mary Magdalene shows up early in the morning to anoint the body of her beloved teacher and friend, no doubt after a long night of restless and fitful sleep, preparing to do the hardest thing she's ever done. I imagine Mary Magdalene stealing herself 
for the moment when she will look into the tomb at the broken, lifeless body of her beloved Jesus. In my mind, she kind of gives herself a little slap on the face and tells herself that she can do it. She has to do it. As she approaches the tomb, I imagine that she squints her eyes, trying to bring into focus the opening with its stone rolled away. This isn't right. Jesus is supposed to be in there. But he's not there, and she doesn't know where he is. She has been building up to this moment, mentally preparing to do the hardest thing she's ever done. And when that moment finally arrives, Jesus is gone. There is no body to anoint, no face to kiss one last time, and no chance to really say goodbye. As she stands weeping outside the tomb, weeping for grief, no doubt, but also for confusion, for exhaustion, and for the absence of closure, Jesus appears to her in the garden. At first, she doesn't recognize him, mistaking him for a gardener. But the moment he calls her by name, she knows exactly who he is. He is the same Jesus that he was before, and yet he has been made new. She reaches out, wanting to grab hold of him, wanting to keep him there where she knows where he is, but he cautions her not to hold on to him. He has other places yet to go, other appearances yet to make. Jesus is like that flowing river Ezekiel talks about. He can't be confined to a tomb or a temple, or even to our own imaginations or understandings. He is at once the same Jesus that Mary Magdalene has known and loved for years, and yet he is completely new. He looks the same, his body carrying all the experiences of his short life, and yet he has been resurrected. He was dead, and now he's alive. I understand Mary Magdalene's urge to grab hold of Jesus. I know what it's like to wish God would just stay put so anytime I need her, I would know exactly where to go. But ultimately, as hard as it can be for us sometimes, that's not the God we believe in. We believe in a God who is at the same time eternal, yet always new. A God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and also being revealed anew in the world every second of every hour of every day. We believe in a God who could never be confined to the limitations of our understanding. We believe in a God who is surprising and yet constantly present. We believe that when we show up, God shows up too. Just like the waters of the river flowing out of the temple, Jesus can't be contained. As much as we might want to fit him neatly into an easily explainable box, that's just not him. During his life, at least as it's told in the Gospel of John, more than once Jesus tells his followers something along the lines of, where I'm going, 
You can't go. At least not now. But you can follow later. This is basically what he's saying to Mary Magdalene in the garden as well. Don't hold on to me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to the Father. Jesus has more work to do, and Mary can't come along for that part. She has her own message to deliver the other disciples. In the coming weeks, we will read stories about Jesus appearing to the disciples in various times and places. He flows freely among them, each time revealing to them something different. In the same way, Jesus flows freely among us. Each time we meet him, he is the same and yet new. He is constant in his presence and yet ever-changing in our experience of him. All we have to do is show up. And isn't that the baptismal promise that we have made and reaffirmed here today? That we'll keep showing up, expecting to see Jesus? That even though we can't always know where or when Jesus will show up next, we will carry on, carry on with our work, telling the others that he is indeed alive. Mary Magdalene teaches us how to do it. Like Mary Magdalene in the garden, we have to steal ourselves and walk resolutely toward the tombs and broken places of our world, ready to anoint them as holy. Not unafraid, but assured in the knowledge that it has to be done. And who better to do it than the friends and lovers of Jesus? We commit to showing up expecting to see Jesus, but ready for him to reveal himself in an unexpected way. <laughs> if we can do that, I think we'll see that wherever the risen Christ goes, he carries life in his broken body and leaves of healing for a broken world. <laughs>